0: Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan, bringing you the SideQuest Podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world building. And we occasionally take side quests, because, frankly, that's how conversations work. Just as a reminder, this whole show is spoiler heavy. So sit back, tune in, and join us on this episode of SideQuest. What's up, Chuck? You got any chucks this week? No, Jonathan.
1: Sans chucks, but plenty of meetings. This week was uh it sucked the root is what it did. No chucks for this buck. Not at all. Bummer. A chuckless buck.
0: Buckless chuck.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all the above.
0: Uh for those not in the know, if you're tuning into this episode for some reason instead of starting at the beginning. Chucks
2: stands for chuckles, or laughs, because we're reading Stephen King's It. It's relevant.
1: It
0: is, because that's what the kids say those days. In those days. In those days. Speaking of kids, if you could go back in time and change one thing from your childhood, what would it be?
1: It would be one of two things. The first is actually go to culinary school
2: mm. or
1: pursue the theater in school. Oh, really? I always wanted to, never did. And I'll fully admit I could only play myself. I'm not Joaquin Phoenix. I'm definitely not Daniel. You're not? What's his, Daniel Day-Lewis? I couldn't do those kind of roles at all. Yeah, I probably could even do- A Christopher Walken? A lot of roles. I probably could even uh, do Christopher Walken.
0: Slava, you're- uh walking
2: into my scene, Uh, get out. It's not bad.
1: It's not bad at all. Thank you. I, pr- I probably would be able to do a, a walk-in. And that's not to say he's a horrible actor, but he no, doesn't no. have a lot of range. He's
0: very unique. Very. Yeah, he doesn't have a lot of specific. range. Yeah.
1: And I had, don't have a lot of range. I'd probably be able to play Slava as insert right. character. Right, right. Until I got better, obviously, hopefully yeah. I would. So in that order, that's what I would change. I think what's expected of me in this answer is to go back and maybe fix some of the stuff that I mentioned about my childhood that was pretty horrific. Mm, right? Like, oh, I would go and, you know, maybe avoid this or tell my younger self that or not get into a scrap here or there. And there might be those situations too, but the ones that stood out when I really thought about it about an hour ago before we started recording, I really should have played around more of the theater possibilities in school. And then post-school, like immediately after school, like I was like 19, 18, 19, I really should have went to culinary school. Nice. And I say that not because I had aspirations of being a Michelin star chef, but because it's something I wanted to do and I let... The assholes in my life at that time belittle me and talk me out of it. Mm Mm-hmm. Much connected to our story and our kids that we're reading about. But it's just the truth. It's part of my life. I can't erase that history. Right. But I would want to not let these people these two things up for me. Yeah. What about yourself? If you could go back and either talk to little Jonathan or with what you know now, sway Jonathan into a different uh, direction or beat up a bully. I don't know.
0: Ask a girl out, whatever. I think I would do something similar I to to your answer, which is like, tell myself to go after a couple skills that I've always wanted. I've always wanted to be able to sing and play an instrument. But my first answer, so I'm stealing those because you mentioned something about like going back and learning a new skill, basically. I've never had an issue taking the risk of... Something that I've wanted, I, have I even in middle school, asked girls out, got rejected, but I did it. Like, I have no regrets there. Like, yeah, rejection hurts, you gotta suffer through it, whatever, but I did it. You can't tell me I didn't have balls back then for trying. So, what I would do is I'd go back and I'd talk to little Jonathan and tell him, the sooner that you start picking up responsibility and understanding that no one's coming to save you, the quicker you will enjoy your life. That's it. That's all I'd say. I would tell them, like, there's like life gets really good in your 30s, but if you change this now, it can probably be really good in your 20s. So jump on it. Solid advice. So that's that was the original answer that I thought of when you asked the question or, uh, yeah, when you asked the question back to me. This is the fourth question that's damn
1: good. (laughs) The seventh question
0: that I've been forced
1: to ask and the third in a row that I've asked. What the record show? You want a cookie?
0: i'll take a diet coke i'm watching my girlish figure i'll take a diet coke love it yes good job slava you asked a question well now that you're being
1: patronizing it's you know just take it away from me it doesn't mean anything
0: (laughs) Uh, i'm here to spoil your fun did you miss me the answer to that's yes well sure i missed whatever we have here
1: this is this is fun
0: (laughs) Oh, that sounds ominous. No, we missed a recording because... I was sick. After talking with my brother, it sounds like I might have had the neurovirus for a bit last week. It was rough. Whatever I had, because I was explaining it to my older brother, and he was like, that kind of sounds like we had, and we, uh, yeah, what what he and his family had. We don't live nearby. They live in New York. And I was like, describing it to him, he's like, yeah, it sounds like what we had. We had neurovirus, and I was like, whatever I had was gross. Like, constantly feeling like I needed to vomit. Basically didn't leave the bathroom for 24 hours. Body fatigue, back pain. Success that day was keeping a single piece of toast down. Nothing on it. Just toast. And two grapes. Like, it was bad.
1: That's, that, that's where you went wrong, the grape. The second grape is where it messed you up.
0: <laughs> you know?
1: I didn't think about that. If you read the CDC guidelines, it says, Neurovirus, avoid all grapes. I'm making that up, by the way. The grapes. This yeah, don't not take a medical show.
0: Don't take any advice on medicine from Slava.
1: Watch me be quoted on some right wing, crazy, loony conspiracy <laughs> theory Instagram. You know, <laughs> Doctor Slava from the SideQuest podcast claims that if you drink a magic potion and eat a half a grape, you won't get neurovirus. No, you will get neurovirus if you have the neurovirus and you eat a grape. You will die. Ooh. again. Not a medical show. It's a satire. I'm yeah. I'm even sad that I have to qualify that.
0: Yeah, well, welcome to America,
1: Bucko. In 2024. <laughs>
0: it is 2024. You know, what, you know what that means. Smash that subscribe button, you salty adventurers, and make sure you never miss a side quest. Correct, Amongo.
1: Because this is where we have fun.
0: Like we're gonna have fun now, doing adult things.
1: Uh, because we in are dairy, in dairy. Maine. You said Massachusetts. I had to edit you out. This is Dairy Maine, not Dairy Massachusetts.
0: I can't be responsible for the words that I say. This is
2: 2024.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Touche.
1: And you've had a neurological disorder or a virus or something.
0: Something like that.
1: So today we're covering part three of Stephen King's The It, Grown Ups, chapters 10, 11, 12. And the third interlude. Dun, dun, dun. So, memory is a big part of this this section, this part. Let's side quest on how the origin or the inception of the book is different depending on different sources, and talk a little bit about memory. So, when I introduced the author in the first episode, and then we went into how the book came to be, I said that King was walking across a bridge to pick up his car from the mechanic, as he was walking across the bridge, he thought, wouldn't it be cool to write a book, write a story based loosely on Three Billy Goats Gruff? And numerous sources quoted him as going to pick up the car from the mechanic. I was watching YouTube uh, while I was cooking, and in the autoplay section, a King lecture came up, and in this lecture he said that It was him walking home from the tow place because his car broke down, had to call a tow truck, and him walking home, he walked over a bridge and came Mm. up with the idea. So all that to say, or all that to ask, how funny
0: is memory? So, yes, but I'm going to take this in a slightly different direction. What you've just described is referred to as the Mandela effect. And... Do you remember that book about the bears who lived in a house? I do. The Bernstein bears. Yes. Well, (laughs) the Bernstein bears are what you're referring to. And when we were growing up, just like you said, the memory is different. Like the Bernstein bears is what we remember. But it's actually the Bernstein. B-E-R-E-N. Stein, Berenstein bears, as opposed to the Bernstein bears.
1: Uh, do they wear so, Do they wear white shirts with
0: fruit and cornucopia? No, but that's another one. Fruit of the loom. People people remember that the fruit of the loom had a cornucopia as a logo, and there's just a lot of things like this. So so the, people believe that there actually like a, a new timeline that took place there's a few theories that's one of them another theory is that someone has been going back with a time machine and changing things just to see how much they can screw with people in the real world and going back and changing things just to, just because they can I like that theory yeah another one's um the Monopoly guy having a monocle see I don't remember that Pikachu's tail having a black tip I don't know about that one uh huh agnostic yeah okay Jiffy peanut butter what was that one Uh, it's jiff it's not jiffy it's jiff right but there's people have a memory of jiffy peanut butter but it's always been jiff yeah so this is this is exactly it this is the mandela effect where people have a collective memory about a specific thing that they're like oh yeah i remember that and then you look it up and it ain't true unless the government's been you know just uh, messing with the space-time continuum or this is just a psyop. if you listen to tiktok you know, philosophers. That's what it is.
2: Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: It's it's possible, but uh, anyway. So yes, I've had times where I remember something, and people will be like, "No, that's that's not what happened." But the problem is, I usually have a better memory than them, so I don't believe them because I I can recount facts, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I guess that was true." It's like right, exactly. So it's just interesting. Like it's this is a whole phenomena. This is one of my favorite conspiracy theories. Is the Mandela effect believing that ever since Nelson Mandela died, there's been false memories being changed in people's recording of past events?
1: Yeah, it's amazing.
0: I like that one.
1: And birds are not real.
0: I love birds are not real, dude. It's
1: so amazing.
0: That story you told in the previous episode, yeah, so good. Oh my gosh, but so good.
1: Lest we belabor and forget. Why we're here.
0: To save the town of Derry, Massachusetts.
1: Yep. There it is. So, a quick overview of the section. The adults have been called back to Derry. Bill wakes up in the Derry townhouse, where a few of them have hotel rooms. Mike calls. Mike says where to meet them. And he takes a cab. On the cab ride to the restaurant, Bill notices how much the town has changed. Everything looks new. But he feels like the old dairy was mostly buried under the new construction and your eye was somehow dragged helplessly back to look at it, to look for it. To quote Bill. They learned that they have become successful and none of them have children, but they're all very well off. So we'll come back to that and probably in part four, because that'd be more interesting to talk about that one where we get the POV of It. hmm So let's stop there for a second. This is right in line with our conversation about Mandela Effect memories, going back to town. I remember going back to the town where I grew up, the town where I first read It, and going to the library where I played the part of Ben Hanscom, loner kid who liked... In my case, horror books. In my case, Stephen King books. And how small it looked. Remember how Bill describes the hospital that was so small and then it was consumed by the new construction of the bigger hospital? Yeah. Well and obviously, you know, I'm seventeen inches higher and two hundred pounds heavier. So obviously things are gonna be a little small I'm well, not maybe two hundred pounds, I'm not that uh but your scale, not mine. But how funny it is to revisit the past. You mentioned in a previous episode, I think it was last episode, that during your pre-marriage counseling with your fiance, you had to revisit some childhood things. Mm-hmm. And it's a little different, but it's this—it's the same principle at play. Yeah. You want to share a little
0: bit of it? Yeah, I can share a little bit of it. So, so the, one of the things that came up was it was back during Hanukkah, and we were doing Hanukkah stuff with her family, and nobody told me that they were like, hey, let's not do gifts this year. And by nobody, I mean my fiance, because they communicated with her about this, but we had already bought everybody gifts. And like, okay, at the end of the day, you guys are giving gifts out, nobody else is giving you a gift. We're adults, it should be fine, no big deal, right? Nope, it's a big deal. It's a really big deal, apparently, actually, because I, I, the the evening ended and they left. And I was like, why do I feel so sad and, and unloved? And I had to do some journaling about it and figure it out. And then I just, like, started weeping because I was like, oh, when I was growing up, the only thing that we really did in my family from how I remember our growing up was love was only communicated through gifts. And so, like... Mm. We have this time with Hanukkah where I was expecting to get gifts. And the thing is, they don't even need to be great gifts. It's just that you got them. Like that, just by getting gifts, even if they're all socks, right? Like wrapped, but they're all socks. That communicates that you were loved. Didn't know that was there until you went through the experience. It's like, hey, by the way, this is like a soft spot in your, like a sore spot or like a a wound from the past, right? Quick detour on this, like, For those who are unfamiliar, they have categorized the communication of love into five love languages. It's physical touch, words of affirmation, uh, acts of service, so like doing something for you, quality time, and gifts. And in my family, four out of the five of those, so gifts being the only one, we didn't do four of those. We didn't touch each other. We didn't tell each other nice things. We didn't spend time together, quality time. We didn't do stuff for each other the only communication we really had was buying each other stuff. That is the way that I grew up receiving love was like, Hey, if somebody bought you something like that's love. And if not, then like nothing else really matters. So this, like I wept and then like, had to talk with her about it the next day. And like, I'm an adult, I'm not going to passive aggressively text her and go, you know, it wasn't kind that you did like, you know, put her on trial. I'm rediscovering this thing. She's not at fault. I didn't even communicate what our love languages were from, from growing up. You can't hold someone responsible to an expectation that you haven't communicated, even if you feel like you want to. Hard stop. So anyway, that was the thing that I alluded to in episode one, I think it was, because it's been, it's been a few weeks, and I don't mind sharing it. It's just like a thing that happened. Yeah. Yeah, those are,
1: those are fun. Um, I have a few of those, but... <laughs> I was, fun I was, is not
0: how I describe it. But, I mean, but I, you know, okay.
1: I have a few of those, and I'll share them when appropriate. When sure. you know, in the in the context is appropriate. But yeah, fun being a loose term,
0: obviously, but fun nonetheless. <laughs> I think the fun part is being able to talk about it and not feel shame because it's like, look, yeah, you know, this is the way that you were raised. This is how you remember being raised. And even yeah. if the the hard facts of objective truth are different, like as a kid, you don't know any better. And so this is just how you received it. And so it's there.
1: Yeah. So we have our friends from Derry. They've joined Mike at the restaurant. Mike tells them about Adrian Mellon's murder. They begin to remember stuff that's going on. And this is right before they go out for their walks. He tells them about the nine children that have been killed. He says that the story should have been reported nationally, but it doesn't want to. It's a mm-hmm. quote from, mm-hmm. uh, from the book. Mike says that whatever is, it is also inside the people of Derry. And Mike, by this point, has calculated that Derry has an unusually higher rate of every violent crime we know of. So he's been doing this since he was a kid. And he's been interviewing locals and he's been going through history books. And then and during this um, memory session... He shows them Georgie's school picture from the album. Oh, yeah? Only, only Bill and Richie recognize it because it's from the album that they both saw. Mike mentions a murder in Nebo Street. Eddie begins to scream. Things start suddenly start to come undone. And then Mike shows them a picture of a wall where the body of a boy named Jerry Bellwood was found. And written on the wall in Jerry's blood are the words, Come home, come home, come home. It seems at this point that it is calling them back home to finish because they fought it twice Mm
2: -hmm. and they
1: fought it at bolt They went back into the you know the sewer drains when Henry Bowers chased them. They fought it twice, coming back to fight it. What do you think about this? And this is the same thing you did to me with Way of Kings. I'm going to ask you to assume something. Do you think? Do you think it? Wants to settle the score, or it wants to finally get rid of them.
0: I guess I need one clarifying question first. What yes. would you What would you say is the difference between settling the score and finally getting rid of them? Because that sounds like the same thing to me. Uh I guess it is the same thing. I was going to say it doesn't sound like there's a distinction here. I I, I interpreted it as being the same thing: settling the score and finally killing them, because that's what it originally wanted to do. But if if I understand the creature, it and i'm going to call it a creature i know it takes different forms whatever yeah it doesn't the, matter the, the 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 grimoire what is it called grimoire glamour right? glamour glamour oh yeah glamoury yeah 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 okay so the glamour nothing powerful ever likes to be threatened period like throughout history throughout time throughout stories powerful things don't enjoy being threatened they like being powerful and so when they are threatened they need to crush very swiftly that which threatened them because otherwise there like there's a threat for them and they don't like that. So, I think that it is trying to settle the score and we see this we see this in the third interlude where it's calling Tom and Henry and Audra to also come to Derry as, you know, insurance policies almost.
1: Right, that that ties into my question. Do you think it's calling reinforcements?
0: Oh, yeah. The storytelling makes it very blatant. In this section, you know, you've got your chapters and then you've got the interlude. And that's how you've sliced it up for us. So it's pretty apparent to me that it's trying to make sure that it can't lose and stack the deck in its favor. But here's the thing when you've got a band of friends, doesn't mean you're not going to lose some. When you have a band of friends, someone's going to succeed, even if everybody else dies. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I haven't done any research, but I know King has done some foreshadowing here with each of them going like, if they ever make it back, or they didn't expect to make it back, or like he's mentioned this with each character. So. Right. For good reason.
1: Absolutely. That ties in beautifully into the next portion. It starts off with Mike pointing out that they've all become financial successes. And he says... My conclusion is that your success stems from what happened here 20 years ago. He says that it was his job to stay in dairy and keep watch. It leaves its mark on people just by the nature of what it is. The way you can smell a skunk on you, even if, after you bathe. That's interesting because another question which we'll get into a little later is how it affects the citizens of dairy. And we'll definitely talk about it in part four, because there's a, there's a situation with Bev that happens that's atrocious, and the people of Derry literally turn their back on her in, in, this, in this little incident. Well, one person does, but...
0: I mean, I bet I can guess it, because I bet it involves her ex-husband, or, well, husband. She hasn't really filed divorce yet. But... No, it, it
1: involves a Henry Bowers.
0: Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, then I'm wrong.
1: So... There's the memory part of it. They're all here talking about this to bring back their memories. Yeah, Mike can remember everything that happened up until the end, but he knows that they thought that they killed it. Although he does not remember the fight, we did something. At some point, we were able to exercise some sort of group will. And as they're going back and forth about this, why are they financial success? What they did in the in the past in fifty seven, fifty eight. How's that connected to anything they've done or are doing now? And Bill points out that none of them have children. And as they compare notes about memories and their lives, Mike says they have to decide if they're going to try to kill it or go back to their lives. So quote again, With Stand gone, the circle we made that day is broken. I don't really think we can destroy it or even send it away for a little while, as we did before, with a broken circle. And then, after a little bit, they unanimously vote to stay and fight it. And like you said, some of them thinking they're not coming back. Mm -hmm. And here's where we get into the next section. Mike suggests that they split up for the day and go back to the parts of dairy they remember best. Yeah. Using intuition, this is a quote again, using intuition... ...is a hard thing for grown-ups to do. And that's the main reason I think it might be the right thing for us to do. They will meet that night at the library to talk about what happens to them. A plate of fortune cookies arrive, and you texted me about this. I did. And they break them open. Blood everywhere. Blood spurts out of the barrel cookie. There's a cricket in Eddie's and a human eyeball in Richie's. Ben's cookie contains two teeth. A huge fly crawls out of Bill's cookie... And he remembers that he had been thinking about writing a story about a fly. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: So before we get into their walking tours, Mm -hmm. what role does memory and forgetting play in these characters' destinies? Suppose the characters did not forget their shared experiences after leaving Daddy. (laughs) Daddy. (laughs) Daddy it.
0: Uh, How would it impact their fates? Uh my goodness. Great.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, I'm gonna think about that for just a second because I have
2: to I have to pull myself back together. Alright, Daddy. I mean dairy. Well taking just a
0: second or two to think about this I have a question because nothing that King gives us information wise is irrelevant from what I've seen, I haven't really seen any real red herrings in the story yet. Not to say that there aren't any, but I haven't seen any. I don't think there are. I don't think there are either, but it doesn't strike me as the type of story where he's got red herrings because he's, he's building to a bigger thing. And so it doesn't really fit the narrative anyway. So they all have like made pretty good wealth by leaving dairy, which makes me wonder, like, did what they did as kids help lead toward that growth of wealth and like getting really good jobs or was it simply that dairy is an oppressed state of of being I don't know what else to call it because of it and so everyone's poor there for the most part and it's just that they left that they could actually achieve something kind of like Linden with Sacred Valley where like oh he could have been a normal sacred artist but he was in a, a zone that had oppression on it yeah. Interesting. I haven't thought about it that way. What I came away with
1: was they left dairy and whatever they did to it set them up for success, either because of some magic that happened. Okay. And since we're using, remember the thing we talked about and it we came back to, even though you said you wanted to, with the kid laws and adult laws? Yeah. So maybe because of the magic of that. They left and were able to achieve success partly because of that and partly because, yes, I agree with you, Dairy's is oppressive, but you have rich people in dairy too. You know, business owners and, you know, politicians and people who are way better off than Bev and the rest of the folk, right? Right. Or did it touch him in some way to keep them away? Like, I'll give you success. I'll give you good lives. Just stay away. And don't bother, don't bother me and dairy as I do my thing here. I think the oppression of dairy, call it spiritual, is a real thing. It strikes me as interesting that the people who stay are either ignorant, blinded to the evil of dairy, or complicit somehow, or when faced with it, too weak to do anything about it. So, getting back to the second part of our question, if they didn't forget and whether or not they became successful, let's say they can, they have enough to eat. Mm-hmm. If they didn't forget, how would that impact
0: their lives? Well, if they didn't forget, I think that they would return quicker to try to deal with it. Because it knows that they made an oath, I think, and they know that they made an oath. They forgot, but Mike called them back. And... I imagine that part of the reason Mike didn't forget is because he stayed. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so there's some sort of like realm of forgetfulness when you pass beyond the barrier of dairy because Mm -hmm. they've come back and they have remembered now. So we didn't really answer your first question about predestination and the role of memory and forgetting their destiny. Like, I think that they forgot. And so then they were allowed to live their lives, not necessarily destiny. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Just because of the logic of, like, if dairy has a barrier around it where you can remember everything if you stay, but you forget things if you leave, like, under that premise, then there is no destiny of them leaving outside of the fact that they've left um, with my current information. And with Interlude, I'm not giving away too much, can control people. Well, it can influence them, right? Like, I don't think I've seen possession necessarily.
1: No, you haven't. Okay. But it could. Heavily influence people to the point where they act on their basest instincts. Yeah. Like Henry Bowers like is Henry. a right. piece of shit thing. psychopath that hates these kids who have bested him. At the point where they decided to fight back, they bested him at every turn. And when you get to part four and they best him again and again, and he's he literally goes insane because of it. Partly because of it, I think.
0: Well, his father was wasn't much much, wasn't, much. His 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 daddy was a
1: yeah, daddy was a was a crazy person, was a bent nail and a screw world. So I want to touch quickly on predestination and then move on to their walking tours. Destiny, yes, they forgot because they left the oppressive circle, whatever you want to call it, of dairy. Their destiny was to come back and fight the clown. They might have not led a successful lives but you can't change
0: the future no matter what you do I definitely think that they were going to go back into this I, I don't subscribe to the same sort of predestination but yeah I definitely think that they were going to go back and fight it and and if for no other reason than it wouldn't make a good story if they didn't right like what else would they do? You know, okay, let's 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 rule out that they're gonna come back and fight it. Like, cool. Bev stays in her, her abusive relationship, Bill, you know, is in England doing movie stuff, Mike is a librarian, makes shit for money. And even
1: by eighty standards.
0: Yeah, like, yeah. I that that is kind of the only thing that stuck out to me so far of like come on, King, like you're gonna make the black guy make the least amount of money in a podunk town. Like, I don't know. Anyway, just kind of stuck out to me. But it could be because of the way that the state of the world is right now.
1: Yeah. I don't know if it has anything to do with him being black and it doesn't matter, but it still seems to me he could have made $10,000 more a year.
2: hmm Yeah.
1: Yeah. Whether he was Chinese or white, Polish or Jewish or any stripe of uh, ethnicity, it seemed that he made less than a busboy. Right. Right. And who knows, maybe in Maine in 1987, what is it, 13000 a year he was making or something? Something abysmal. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's even if it was 20, low. like, wow, that's a, you're the head librarian of a mid sized town. You, you're making at least 50, even in the 80s, I think. I mean, what do I know? I was only born in the 80s. I could be completely off. Maybe $20,000 went a long freaking way in the 80s in Maine.
0: In
2: Maine.
1: Yeah. Anyway, let's we're keep, getting let's off, keep rolling. We're getting off track. We need to be in our walking tours, and we're moving into chapter eleven, and it's called the walking tours, or how the adult losers meet it again. Wow, it's such a better title when you say it. Yeah, that's my spin on it. So Ben goes to the library, and he goes into the children's section, and he hears a librarian, uh, reading Three Billy Goats Gruff. Mm-hmm. And he looks at the kids, and the kids are all fascinated. And this is where those little gems of kid rules, adult rules, comes in. And the kids are fascinated by this woman reading the the book. And he feels this sense of nostalgia, and he feels this me- all these memories flooding back to him, like look looking up a girl's skirt, and he feels ashamed because it's his first time seeing a you know a girl's undergarments. And it was the, like the sexual discovery that's happening in him. And he's like 11, to all 13. Uh, but he's in his element where, with all the books. And he decides to get a library card. I, I, I think this is just such an interesting thing that King put in. He could have just had the memories. The clown could have showed up and did his thing like he did. Messed with Ben while he was walking through the library. But King adds this little uh, twist, which I just love, where he's like, you know what? Can I get a library card, even though I'm from Nebraska? I was a kid. I used to live in this library. And, you know, and maybe that's just my bias, because I used to live in the library back when I was his age. But I think it's just a, a funny little an endearing scene of Ben going to get the library card.
0: That struck me as weird. And nonsensical because he was from out of town. And also, like, then he started lying about having a son. Like, that felt a little out of place to me. I disagree, but I, I get it because it's a good, you know, gr- a grown man in a
1: library going, yeah, my kid here, ha, 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 ha. But he's also from out of town. He's here to kill it, mm-hmm. an evil clown. He's an adult, so he's now occupies the adult space. He adheres to now adult rules and adult laws and a guy from out of town hanging around the kids section in the library in a town where kids are disappearing, he has to make up a lie. Like he's not he's not gonna tell the librarian, Yeah, I'm here to kill the clown that's been killing your kids. Right. He needed to say something, I get that. But I think it's endearing that he gives the library card. It's it's like him reliving the memory. It's mm-hmm. like finding an old bike in a pawn shop. Exactly. It's like finding it an old bike and a poncho, and it serves the purpose for the story. If you happen to be writing a story about kids killing an evil clown from <laughs> beyond the veil of all reality.
2: Uh,
0: <laughs> but I, I thought it was endearing. That's, I love that for you. <laughs> I, I can sense the judgment and the,
1: what's the word for it? Where you're being a dick, but it's a fancy Pl- word for being a dick. Placating? No, placating is a, uh, could be endearing you're patronizing uh, patronizing thank you yeah uh but that's okay um i'm just making up for lost
0: time my predestined right. sickness kept me kept me away from you
1: and how sad was that so w- <laughs> w- 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 let's uh let's keep walking we keep getting sidetracked on the, on these walking tours so eddie what do you think about eddie's little thing this, for me, this is the one I thought went on too long, because I get it. Eddie really wanted to play baseball, and his mom was a complete sociopath and didn't let him. The only, thing, the only thing that saved it for me was Eddie saying, I spend the happiest times of my childhood down here. Something about watching baseball, just watching other kids play, mm-hmm. gave Eddie joy. For me, I thought it went on unnecessarily long. But what do you so- think?
0: I I agree with you. I think it went on a little too long, but it was only the section where he was an adult having a a panic episode. Yeah, it felt forced. That felt forced. The flashbacks felt real. Also, I don't know why, but Eddie's character strikes me as the type of guy who doesn't respond super emotionally. Um, and maybe I'm just making that up. Like, certainly open to miss. Misinterpreting him, the flashbacks make sense to me. the catching the baseball, but then like the running down the street and the freaking out and the whatever like that was like, eh, okay, I agree with you,, but I also have a counterpoint, and my own
1: it's based on this because you said Myra when he's she's losing her mind when he's leaving is a caricature, and I said she's supposed to be a caricature, that's the point that she's so ridiculous. And so out of bounds of reality that in the story she acts like a loon because she is one.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And Eddie married her because of Mama. Yeah. And Mama never left Eddie's head. He has a head of his complex whether he knows it or not. Not straightforward, but there's a, there's a glimmer of it here. And I think him losing his shit is no different than his his kid panic attacks and his mother's like remnants of his mother and Myra because they lost their crap with the littlest thing. So here's adult Eddie back in the town where, yeah, he had some happy m- memories, the best of his childhood, watching kids play. He had an abusive orbearing mom. He had bullies to deal with. He had a bunch of just nonsense to juggle in his little brain. Is goes going back to all three, but specifically Mama doing a number on him. And here he is an adult, uh, a hypochondriac with 17 pill bottles in his, you know, in his uh, overnight bag. Yeah. And he starts hallucinating. So as much as I didn't like the scene necessarily, I'm kind of forced to go just like with Myra. This caricature, this insane sort of response seems to... Fit within the world, or what? What King is trying to paint? Even though I'm here, you know, Monday morning cornerbacking and going, mm, maybe I'd have written a different one. Does that make
0: th- sense? It it does. I think that I would have rather him taken some of his pills after he took the baseball, and then have it happened to imply like it could have been a hallucination, but also then give me some sort of clue that it was also real. Like he has one of. It's buttons in his pocket afterward, one of those bright Ooh. orange buttons or something like. Yeah. Where you're like, wait, was it a hallucination? Like that, just that one change where he pops a pill beforehand, and and you you know would have been sufficient to me to to feel more real because I think that we don't get enough time with him having a bunch of drugs and being a hypochondriac.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I'll buy that for a dollar and. The next thing, my dear boy, is one of my favorites.
0: Uh okay. Okay.
1: Um, it has some weird shit in it, but Yeah, it does. Uh, it but does. But Bev's dad, Bev's dad was a was a was a psychopath and a pervert, so it is what it is. But the way this is written, King mastered it pretty well. Did this uh this walking tour.
0: This was the spookiest one to me. Or yeah. like, the, not spooky, creepy, the creepiest. Yeah,
1: movie. right, right. So Bev visits her old home and runs into a woman named Kirsch, which is a manifestation of it. And their conversation, I found fabulous because she, the old lady, so endearing and, oh, don't be so polite, just come on in, have some tea, have some coffee, but
2: See, I thought
0: she was hallucinating. I thought Bev was hallucinating where like the the old woman's real and kind and pleasant and lives there. And Bev like has a hallucination and like runs out the door.
1: The old lady's left, left like what, what a queer woman. What a, like why yeah, was she? Yeah, what a uh, weird woman. Right. right. Yeah. What's interesting is there's little hints that something's off, right? Like the shuffling behind the door. The tea looking like mud, and then the teeth of the woman, and her pauses. So we already get some things off. Now, whether it's a hallucination or this is really it, something is off, and Bev should know. And then, full-blown psycho mode. She starts hearing her father's voice. He worries about her a lot. And Beverly turns to see him, Dad, wearing uh, the old woman's dress, or what now looks like a witch to her, right? And it tells Bev in her father's voice that he only beat her because he wanted to have sex with her. He wanted her sexually. And the only way he could stop himself was to beat her, which is just so twisted. And suddenly he's wearing a clown suit and holding a child's severed leg. And he begins, I think he begins to chase her already for but she's able to open the door, which is turning into chocolate, I think. So it's like a Hansel and Gretel, a uh, little yeah. throwback. So she gets out and she realizes that she was in an abandoned house. Like it was all imposed upon her by it, like it messed her head. So this weird thing with Beverly's dad that he had some sort of weird attraction to her sexually really adds another layer to her character. And I say that because we get hints of that before it talks about it. Her mother asks her if he's ever touched her. Mm -hmm. If you're not a careful reader, you'll miss it because he leers around her and the way he even says, I worry about you, Bevy. And, just the tone, and maybe it was just the the narrator planting this in my head, but just the tone of his speech, or the cadence of his speech, if you will, gives off a creepy vibe.
0: Yeah. So I want to do a quick side quest here before we dive into the other three characters, Richie, Bill, and Mike. You told me before we started reading this book about the turtle. Yes. I don't feel like I've seen him pop up at all. Is that true? Like, is that is that true right now? Like, I just haven't really. Or it's so subtle that like you it, you only catch it on the third read through. No, 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 no. And it's going to come in, in the second half of the book. Like, because I've been looking. I've been looking like I'm like, oh, man, the turtle's going to come up at some point. Forget who it was. Picked up a tin in Georgie. this section.
1: Georgie in the first section.
0: No, 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 no. In this section. Yeah, I, I know Georgie did in the first section with Turtle. But like somebody picked up a tin of grease after he got his bike. Oh, yeah. Bill. And I was like, oh, this is going to be another turtle tin. Nope, not a turtle tin, just a tin. So talk to me about the turtle real quick because have I really just not seen it and it's been there or has it not been there? Because I've been looking. And
1: good on you for looking. So the answer to your question is not a simple yes or no.
2: The turtle is there.
1: The turtle is there. It's foreshadowed with Georgie and the tin. But because of that figure eight, time loop, timeline storytelling King is introducing, you won't get the turtle until part four. And you'll get him in 1958, and you'll get him in 1985. The turtle will make an appearance because Bill and Richie will be able to, specifically Bill, will be able to interact with the turtle. I'll give you that much. That's a lot. So turtle comes back. Right now, it's the adults. Remember kids' law, adult law, kids' rules, adult rules. You're in the section where they come back to dairy as adults, and they begin remembering. And as they begin remembering, you get the turtle. And then, because of the figure eight, when it loops around again, back to 1958, the Georgie looking at the turtle and then Bill, a couple of months or a year later, when they're fighting it, interacting with the real turtle, there's a connection. So the, the, the story structure is throwing you for a loop. But turtle, uh, more to follow on the turtle. Stand by.
0: Okay. Interesting. Cowabunga. Yes. Cowabunga, indeed. Cowabunga sounds like something Richie would say. Great segue, Slava. Thank you. So next on our list is Richie, and he has what I feel like is one of the more tame, if not the tamest, walkthroughs of his walkabouts because he I don't remember him running from it at all. He just like has to confront a bunch of stuff that he he lived through. Um but it really didn't seem as traumatic as everybody else's, in my opinion. But I also remember when I was reading this and thinking about how Richie's noted for having a a faster mind than everyone else. And people have accused me of the same thing. And I believe that I have a very quippy wit as well to go with it. But I'm usually mentally running it like six steps ahead of people. And that's not to tout my own horn. It's not why I say that. I just like reading that about Richie and I go, oh, yeah, that's kind of how I feel about life. I'm just like constantly thinking six steps ahead of whatever's in front of me. And then I've met people who are twelve steps ahead, and I feel like an idiot because I'm like, "How are you thinking that far ahead?" But for me, being him being the funny guy, and then also thinking really far ahead, it just it stuck out to me with hit with uh, with his little walk around town and kind of reflecting on that. Yeah, I would disagree about the tame thing.
1: I think Bill's is the most tame. Uh, he gets to talk to a kid and you know listen to voices in the drain.
0: Yeah, well, that's why I, I you know said like one of the more tame yeah because unless i've blatantly forgot something like richie doesn't run from it richie doesn't even really encounter it richie just kind of encounters his own thoughts richie encounters paul bunyan
1: it tries to kill him by animating the paul bunyan statue oh right 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 i forgot about that yeah but he does go through a litany of things i don't know any litany is too strong a word he goes through a a short list of yeah. things about his life. Short bus. He tries to stu- struggle through and comprehend being a grown up, and confronting one's past. What does that suggest about the toll of their shared experience? They forgot it, but that th- th- something happened. There is a toll that they still paid, right? Because if the memories start flooding back. They're not all you know ro- pe- peaches and roses. Mm-hmm. They're horrible stuff. Even for Richie, who has semi decent parents compared to yeah. the rest of the losers. Uh, Bill's parents just you know fucking ignore him. Best parents, you know, one of them wants to rape her. Yeah. Uh, Mike has a good good parents too, and it seems because of that, both Richie and Mike have more tamer interactions with it. So uh, C
0: plus, <laughs> B minus. Well- did, didn't know. know I was getting graded, but all right, yeah. fair enough. But what about Bill? Yeah, I liked Bill's because he he like chatted with a kid, and the kid was like, Hey, mister, what are you doing over there? And he's like, do you ever hear anything in the drain? And the kid pauses, and he's like, no. And he's like, oh, all right. Starts to walk away, and then the kid's like, I don't, but you know, my friend Tommy down the road, he heard blah, 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 whatever. And it's like, okay, so so Bill gets a confirmation to see through a kid's eyes again, you know, yeah. which is good. I think,
1: the, I think the kid does say, gets the courage. He that eventually goes back does, to, yeah. And say, yeah, I do hear something in the bathroom drain when I'm taking a bath.
0: Yeah, but it takes him like two or three answers to get to, the, get, get yeah. to that point. Yeah. And then he asks him about, you know, the secondhand store and he goes and finds his uh his old faithful bike, Silver the store owner feels like he's a wackadoo and he's like hold up let's uh let's start over here let's do this again and then he pays in a what was it a traveler's check or something something just like wacky like Yeah. yeah haven't haven't heard one of those in a while since the 80s yeah and then he brings the bike back and he goes to uh to mike's house and he starts fixing it up you know making it new again and fixing the squeaky wheel and he has that kind of flashback of, uh, what's the phrase? Put your hands on the posts. Uh, he thrusts
1: his fist against the post and still insists he sees the ghosts.
0: Yeah, that's what it is. I knew it was a rhyme of some kind to help him with his stutter. Yeah. His mom taught him. but Which was actually an old
1: rhyme from way back when. Origins unknown because Slava forgot.
0: Fair enough. It's interesting that Bill doesn't have a real freak-out moment being where Georgie died. And I kind of feel like he would have, maybe. But this is not the same type of um, critique that I had with Eddie on the baseball field. This isn't that type of critique. It's just like, oh, well, I kind of feel like Bill might have freaked out a little bit. Maybe he didn't because there was a kid in front
1: of him. Yeah, maybe. And Bill is you know, kind of like the King Arthur of the group, right? He's their leader. Right. Big Bill. They always turn Big Bill. They always turn to him for uh, help and guidance. And even during the worst of it, he kind of takes charge. You're going to see times when they will talk Bill off a cliff, right? hmm Off the ledge. But he's, he's Big Bill. But he does get to encounter it with Mike as they're fixing the bike. They were going to put playing cards in the spokes. And the way the the cards fell out, that could have it was impossible. So it was manipulating either their eyes or matter at this mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Two aces of spades. Where would you like to walk next, Jonathan? We have very little time, and I put in way too many questions.
0: There's a lot of questions. Let's jump down to the third interlude where we're we've got three uninvited guests. There's not a whole lot in my opinion, that we've left out from from Mike helping Bill fix up silver. No. Anything like that. What really stood out to me in the third interlude is how it is going around rallying at least two members, Tom, Bev's husband, and Henry, who feels slighted by these kids and then also kind of his... Like, that's not the third interlude. That's chapter 12. Third interlude
1: is the massacre of the Bradley gang.
0: Okay. Well, I'm mashing them together
1: in my head then. So he's rallying in Tom and Henry, and then Audra throws herself in the mix because she wants to save Bill.
0: Yeah. Audra might be the wild card. She might be influenced by the turtle. I don't know that, but she doesn't seem to have malicious intent and even though bill told her not to come it doesn't strike me as anything malevolent at the moment although i could see it trying to kill audra in front of bill for some reason yep so other than yeah. that i can't think of um can't think of yeah. a, another reason that she would be a negative to show up you're correct she's there because she loves bill because
1: bill has the most stable life out of all the losers and Audra is part of that stability. Audra is there because she wants to help Bill. It's going to send Tom to deal with Audra, and Henry's being sent to deal with the other looters. So, like you said, it's a stacking the deck.
0: Yeah, yep, stacking the deck. Um, and then, based on your correction with the third interlude, I I remember the the massacre shooting being another one of those incidences where um, it's directly tied to a sacrifice to it. Basically. Yep. yep. And people recount like a clown falling out of a, a window, but not really falling. And there's no shadow on him. And he was holding a gun and things like that. And people recounting the tales. He was juggling. And yeah. yeah.
1: So that, that goes back to its influence on the town. Mm-hmm. The people who don't even know are doing its bidding. Yeah. And then people like Henry... I think because he sees the moon and it talks to him directly. It not just doesn't just influence him to kill, you know, a couple of bank robbers. It directly tells him you must kill the losers, and then it messes with his head, and it messes with Tom's head, telling them that Audra is doing everybody. Because that, what else would uh would get? Not, not. I mean, Beverly is doing everybody because what else would yeah. Tom be afraid of?
0: Right. Is, His ego. Mm -hmm. So. Speaking of the interlude, have there ever been any unique storytelling techniques in literature or tales that you've uh, read over the years that has stood out to you, similar to how the interludes are used here, where we're getting additional POVs? I know that before the episode, we started talking a little bit about the only other author that we both know of that's used interludes is Brandon Sanderson, which adds because it's like interludes really do help build out your world but it doesn't have to be interludes in particular just unique storytelling techniques the only one that comes to mind is a recent one and
1: it's a book we're going to cover it's called head full of ghosts by paul tremblay and it's told from three perspectives and they interchange every other chapter or something like that and one is a pov if i remember correctly it's an omniscient pov then there are like blog entries that are read from a blogger who's covering the event that the story is about and then an interview pov where a woman is given an interview to either an author or a journalist and it's her story like it's she is the daughter that's in this family which the story is about. And I thought it was interesting. First couple of uh transitions I thought it was a little weird. Not in a bad weird, like, oh, I'm turned off. This is this is silly. But it was just kind of like, oh, well this is strange. Okay, where where is it going? And then when I finally got the third PV and we went back to the first one and a second round started, I was like, oh, okay, this is kind of an interesting way of telling the story. Similar to the news clippings with King, I think in the second part. Where we get omniscient, we get interlude, and we get memories, we get news clippings. You know, Mike just reading news clippings. Yourself? Well, what's a don't say Sanderson, but what's another one that uh, stands out to you?
0: Well, I didn't catch this until Jess told me about it, but having Survivor numbered backwards right. was an interesting storytelling technique for a tale. And then another one was that Ray Bradbury story that you found for me. I went back and I, I, I dove through it again where it's kind of a meta story, which was really interesting. So yeah, less on the literature side. I did like the storytelling of the vignettes from Roadside Picnic. That was unique and I enjoyed that, but I think it was still pretty much along the same lines as telling a relatively linear story, even though it was these gaps of time. In between yeah. each each vignette, so yeah, so that was just a collection of vignettes, really. Yeah, yeah, but it's rare for that to be the case, so it still stood out as a unique thing. So now that I'm looking at
1: some of our questions, we sort of, not sort of, we
0: have covered a lot of them. Yeah, I was looking over it, and I curious on how you're going to land the plane. We can end it this way.
1: So part three and you'll notice this after you start part four, stands out for its brevity. It has shorter chapters. There's increased action through the memories and reduced uh, focus on um, I don't know what the other uh, sections give us. You know, the so, some of the interludes and Mike's interviews and the memories, they go really in-depth. We get a lot of world-building character exposition. We get a lot. Here's just adults, restaurant, fortune cookies, memories, Mm -hmm. Bradley Gang. Because three chapters, I think five hours of listening, five hours of reading, as -hmm. opposed to eight for the other section. So I think King did a good job in this section setting up the adults, having them go into their memories, giving us another introduction of the town. As we move into section four, and I've, I'm saying this as somebody who's read the whole book now. Now it picks back up into the story with it. We delve into the sewers, if you will. Got mm-hmm. some fresh air, and we delve back in. If I may stretch an, stretch an analogy, mm-hmm. so I think this section, this is me telling you as you're starting section four, part four. This sets up the next section beautifully. So the the, the this serves as an opportunity for the losers to share updates in their lives. And, you know, each member has achieved some financial success. Although they're uncertain about the significance of connection, these connections with the talents and the fact that they don't have any children and their success, they will later come to believe, and you'll notice this, that every aspect of their lives, including their childless existence, has been orchestrated to lead them back to dairy. So they're going to, in-world, they're going to believe that they're predestined Mm-hmm. to finish off it and you'll get a POV of it contemplating how it's going to finish them off
0: oh that sounds fun
1: that, that is fun like his pov or its pov is very short but it reveals a lot it, you, you'll get a kick out of it and i have a surprise for you i know i've said this before but the next section i have a lot of notes on the lovecraftian origins and lovecraftian connections. And I'm telling you now, not to ruin the surprise, but to whet your appetite to see if you could pick up on them as you read part four.
2: Mm, mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: So.
0: Sounds like a good time. It sounds like a great time. Stay tuned. Next time, part four, July of 1958, and the fourth interlude. And chapters 13 through 18, so it's a long one. It is a long one. All right, you unruly adventurers, make sure you hit that subscribe button so that you never miss a side quest.